Hello, and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. As always, I am your host, Robert Jean Pileccio, possibly sounding a little scratchier than I normally do because of an insane weather shift that has just happened in Philadelphia. Uh, so I'm hoping that that carries me through the rest of the interview. Um, tonight, I am very, very uh, happy to be joined by our most recent Ears playwright, Tess Light. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hi, Robert. Thank you for talking to me. And to add a further uh, interesting element to this conversation, um, Tess and I are not exactly in the same time zone, are we? Uh, <laughs> about how, how far behind me are you right now? Uh, two hours. We're two hours apart. Okay, so it is for, to, to peel back the curtain of how I do this, this is about 9.15 at night for me in Philadelphia and 7.15 for her. So she's raring to go. And, right. I've, and I've been at Starbucks all day, so I should be raring to go as well. Um, well, again, thank you so much for chatting with me. I love the, uh, I love your books behind you. Is that a Harry Potter book? It probably, yeah, there's all the kid books are back. Yeah, this is the kid's shelf. And, um, we've got this little room and my husband plays cello in here and then we stuffed all the books in here. So that's our, it's our nook. All right. I'm trying to make it out because I had the hardbacks growing up. I'm not recognizing. Is that Goblet of Fire or Half-Blood Prince? Uh, let's see. Sorry, I don't have my glasses on. This is the Half-Blood Prince. Okay, what is Half-Blood Prince doing in the children's book section? That is a terribly depressing book for the children. Yeah, you know, there's also, for a while, we had that Inkheart. Did you ever read that Inkheart series? Uh, uh, oh, God. I've heard of that. Is that the, yeah. um, is that one of the Dragon series? No, but it, it was, uh, it, it was just super dark. And the first book was like, oh, yeah, that's not so bad. But I, when the kids were small, I would read through before them. My kids are teenagers now is the answer to what, you know. But gotcha. um, it, I, I read through the Inkheart ones and I was like, whoa, we're not doing that series. Things got, <laughs> whoa. I was like, yeah, I, we can put that one away. So I, I've, I've mentioned it before in this podcast, but I, uh, I often work as a teaching artist at Hedgerow Theater in Rose Valley. And uh, a few years ago, before I was a teacher there, I was acting in one of their youth productions. I was playing one of the adult characters in A Little Princess. And the you know young, young little girl who plays the early version of the main character and I uh, were chatting backstage and she loved Harry Potter, uh, but she could only read the first three or four books because mm. the, yeah. you know, that's when everyone starts dying. And yeah. I was like, oh, you know, it, they're going to be great. It's worth the wait. And she was like, yeah, my favorite character's serious. I hope nothing happens to him. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, oh, no, no. honey, you got a you got a world of heartbreak ahead of you. I hope I'm not spoiling it. <laughs> yeah, listening right. to this. Could, Some, someone who just started the series is going to be like, God. Yeah, serious. Thanks. Um, but moving on to you. <laughs> see, I see. I told you this conversation will get derailed very easily, um, especially when you put Harry Potter stuff in my line of vision. Um, but just to start out, um, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your theater background uh, and maybe other uh, areas of theater you might have dabbled in? So that's the question I dread because I don't actually have um, I don't have a formal background in theater. I um, I have never worked for a theater and I did not go to school in theater. So uh, I just um, I uh, I want I <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. When I I was in my twenties and um, my mother was encouraging me to write for for various reasons. She was a novelist and. Um, and she just liked how I use words and she kept saying you should write, but I, I, writing prose doesn't work for me because I sort of experience the world as dialogue. And, um, then, uh, when, uh, I had a, a maternity leave, so I, I had a break from work and I decided I would try to write, but I would write, um, plays and I just started. And, and so I don't have any background. I've just, the last, um, I don't know, maybe eight years, I've just been trying to, uh, I started writing a long time before that, but then after a while I decided I should try to do something with them and get, get some productions. And, and so it's been a very slow, slow road. Um, cause I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm in a very, very small town. And, um, so that's it. My background is largely just from the outside. Well, no shame in that. Um, <laughs> I definitely, I, a close friend of mine, um, who is actually an equity actor now, didn't find it until 
very, very late in life. Um, I, I, I can't remember what he went to school for, but it was, his wife has been in theater for years. She's, uh, very, very prominent at Hedgerow Theater, and he started acting and then found he just loved it. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. Um, and is this, so this is obviously, the piece we're going to talk about today is obviously not your first dabble in writing, no, as you said. it's not my first play. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely not. I think I've read or written, well, you know, there's always the plays you don't really want to admit to having written um, <laughs> some really bad ones from the beginning. So, but somewhere on the order of seven to ten, something like that. Oh wow! And um, I believe you just kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, was was play when you first started writing? Uh, what was the leap from just writing to playwriting? Like, did you start kind of write into scripts, or were did the stories kind of come first? So no, so I, I started right into scripts because, like I said, I, I sort of, um, I sort of experience life as dialogue and conversation, like, and I process information that way, and I, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Somehow, like, information becomes more cemented in my head when I talk about it with people, and it's just how my brain works, you know. Where some other people, everybody works differently, right? Right. And so, um, I'm you know, just dialogue is, is presented itself to me as the way to express myself. So when I started writing, I immediately just started writing uh scripts. Wow. Yeah. Actually our, uh, I've, I've raved about her on the podcast before, but our artistic director, uh, Lauren M. Shover was kind of like that with her first piece, uh, captive. And I have talked about it before, but I lived with her at the time that she wrote it and it was just, uh, she just couldn't stop. She just had this idea that she wanted to put on paper and just plow through it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's easy for me to hear the conversation in my head. Like the thing I don't do, you know, Harry Potter is a good example, actually. Yeah. You know, what, what's the genius of, of Rowling's world is, is the minute detail that she Mm -hmm. envisioned. She has visualized something so completely and down to such detail, but it's not just, dialogue or the story it's it's little it's a visual like she's created yeah. a world. and I, my brain doesn't quite create that way it's more like it creates people talking to each other and they could be in a freaking void you know like it starts with people talking to each other in my head and it's everything else is secondary which you know in fairness I mean? in the uh in the context of the piece we're going to talk about in a little bit there is a I'm little fair. bit of a void element yeah, <laughs> Well, if you looked at my stage directions, it's kind of like, yeah, kind of do what you want. You know, it, I don't really, I don't uh, come up with these really elaborate visuals. The visual is what the people are doing. It's more visual with the people than it is um, with the set, if you see what I mean. Right. Which actually I thought really, uh, I thought was really interesting when I first delved into this piece and... Um, what it might be best to just go ahead and jump right into it. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of freedom I saw as, um, I don't direct as much as I act, but I am a director and I have a director's eye with every piece I see and every piece I read. And my brain just went crazy, uh, reading this play, just trying to think about where would I put this? How would I stage that? How would I cast it? Um, so I guess before we go even for, uh, any further, um, if you could just please give us a brief description of Billy Joel holds the key to the afterlife and set up the scene we're going to listen to, and then we'll come back around and talk about the actual piece. Okay. Um, so the setup for the play is that there's a family, uh, uh, you know, used to use the phrase broken family, a divorced family. And uh, they've been divorced since the main, they're all main characters, since Carmen, their daughter, before just before she was born. So these two uh, adults had this acrimonious divorce, and then they raised their daughter uh, apart. And the setup is that uh, they're, they both die very close to one another in time. So the daughter is left with her grieving process. That's her part of the story. But then 
the two, I'm not, you know, that's where we're going. <laughs> it's about the afterlife. Yeah. So yeah. the two people um, then meet up in the afterlife and they have to come to grips with each other before they're allowed to move on. And I, and I think that's the scene that yes, we've got yes. where they first uh, lay eyes in each other in the afterlife. All right. Let's take a listen. Act two, scene one. <clears throat> Francis wanders about. She's visibly healthy, radiant, possibly younger. Upstage are some simple suggestions of Carmen's home. Writing desk, bed, and some boxes are piled there as well. Where is this? Feels far too lovely to be hell. The absence of pain is taken for granted, but it's possibly the most magnificent state of being. Hello? Hello? Um, excuse me? Other people? Okay, I get it. I get it. This is it. This is what I wanted to know about. I'm here. I'm there. Here. Wherever. This is it, I guess. Okay, but I mean, come on. Empty isolation is going to get real old real fast. Hi. Hello? Excuse me, but... Hello, I wonder if you... Phew. Service here stinks. Inesh enters. He makes straight for her. Ma'am? Finally! Are you here to help me? If help is what you need. It is. I, I wonder if you can direct me onward? Onwards? To my final repose, perhaps. You're ready for finality? Oh, well, no. I, I mean, <clears throat> not if there are alternatives. All the lessons of life are suitably learned. Are they? Are they not? Young lady, your soul is yet as the furled leaf. Young lady? Profoundly young. It's very pleasant here. And I like you especially. Thank you. But I do find myself a wee bit disoriented. Most feel that way in transition. It will require focus. But if you apply yourself with a little self-discipline, you will find the path. That's unfortunate. If you knew me, you'd know that, well, self-discipline and focus are not my greatest strengths. I do know you, and trust that you'll find yourself up to the task. The task, in fact, was crafted specially for you. I see. Excuse me, but I don't see. Please ask. What am I to do? I mean, I... I'm dead, yes? You are transitioning. Right, transitioning. Okay, but how do I do that? Pause and reflect, my dear. Ganesh becomes unavailable or invisible to Francis. Okay, okay, I can reflect. Speaking of reflections, I look fantastic. While Francis, Francis admires herself, Carmen enters, shouting to her husband, and Ganesh fills the role of the husband's physical self. Perhaps she shouts in his direction, or he reacts to her anger by turning away. Just shut it, Simon. You don't know what you're talking about. I mean, your name is Simon, for fuck's sake. You know what's Italian, like I know how to speak Chinese. Carmen huffs to one side of the stage and starts angrily going through boxes of her mother's things. A terribly disoriented Leo enters, wanders about. He, too, is younger, healthier. Okay, what's this now? Who are all these people? Can't I get some privacy? I've been through hell already. Oh, hell. Hell. Hmm. Not hot? Hmm. Fat lot the priests, no? Ganesh heads for Leo. Sir? Who in hell are you? Huh. Get it? Who in hell? But seriously, who are you? I welcome you. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Have you any questions? No, no, I've got this. No problem. Everything seems crystal clear to you. Absolutely. Thanks. Let me know if the clarity becomes obscured. Ganesh becomes unavailable or invisible to Leo. Sure. Don't need any help. I can figure this out. 
Eventually. Leo begins exploring the stage, the space. Carmen curls up in the fetal position on the bed. If Ganesh stays on stage, he can sit stroking her hair while watching the others. Francis notices her daughter. Carmen, baby? Carmi? You can't hear me, can you? Carmen struggles not to cry. Francis turns away. I'll give you just a moment. I'm sure she's fine. Leo notices Carmen. But she's not upset over me. Francis and Leo finally see one another. Oh. My. God. Is that... Is that... Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? You? Here? I can't even get away from you here. What are you doing here? And where is here? And what are you? Why are you... Where are we? Here. This is my transition, thank you very much. And you are ruining it. You're what? Look, I didn't ask to come here. It's not like I'm stalking you. Oh, right. Sure. You think I'm stalking you? Well, let's see. How did you get here? The hard way. You have any idea how painful that surgery was? You died in surgery? Can't say I remember clearly, but that must be it. And here I am. Thought it was hell, but it's not. You know, how they describe it. So I thought maybe the other place. But you're here, so no, definitely hell. I never thought I'd live to hear you admit you deserve to go to hell. You didn't live to hear it. Ha! Well, you'll have to go off and find some other place for your own. My own what? Transition. Talk sense. Where the hell are we? No gates, no fire, no new body, no nothing. You got here first. Haven't you figured anything out? Well, they don't hand out manuals. Did you ask? Who would I ask? Aren't there other people? I saw other people. Well, they're not very friendly. Sort of aloof. There was one nice man, fond of me, but otherwise not so helpful. All this time you've been alone? How long has it been? I've no way of telling. Two weeks. Two weeks? You lasted a measly two weeks without me? See? Stalker. Oh, please. After a lifetime plagued by you, I definitely would have liked to enjoy myself for more than two stinking weeks. But you've been here long enough. Haven't you talked to anyone? Figured anything out? I told you I'm busy transitioning. Just like you. Never do for yourself. Someone else has to take care to do the work. Oh, is that so? Absolutely, princess. Tell me, did the nice-looking man, the one who greeted me, did he welcome you as well? Might have said something. But you asked no questions. Not one? He caught me off guard. Off guard? I didn't like his eyes. Shifty. Oh, please. Mr. Big Man can never ask a question. No one can ever know more than you. This is no way to run a business. You want a positive customer experience? You won't get it this way. Make things a little clearer, easier. That's what draws people in. To attain clarity, we must pause and reflect. That's it. That's what you got? More than you. That's it. That's it. You stick to your part of eternity, and this over here, this is mine. And we're back. So first things first, um, I just need to ask, uh, how does comedy come easy to you? Because it definitely feels like it does. Oh, well, I hope you found the piece funny. Um, it was intended to be funny. Um, does it come easily? <laughs> you know, that's such a dangerous question. You ask somebody <laughs> funny, and they always go, I'm hilarious, right? And maybe nobody else thinks they are. So um, sometimes I think it comes funny. Sometimes I think I'm hilarious. And then, you know, it just falls flat. So I don't think comedy really comes easily to anybody. But um, I mean, I, I the, the, dang- the dangerous flaw there is that, you know, like if I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I know from experience myself to be funny, but it's very different to plan humor. And it's very easy to fall flat on a joke um, that you've been working up in your brain for a while, and then something off the cuff just flies out, kills the room, and then everyone says, well, you should go to, you should do stand-up. I'm like, no, do you know how much premeditation and planning has to come with that? Well, and and the style of humor in this piece and in all my my stuff is um, well. So first of all, it's about death, and I 
it's a comedy. So yeah. obviously I take things a little differently maybe than yeah. other people. But, but secondly, my style of humor is more, um, it's not jokes. It's not a Neil Simon kind of one liner, right? You know? And so it, it can also, it, it can be hard, I think, to convey that. Um, because if you just read it, um, straight, it, it, it doesn't nece- the humor doesn't necessarily come out. So it, um, I think it's, or maybe I'm just not funny. <laughs> no, you, I want to. I want to put that to rest there. Just know you are. You are very okay. funny. And so, I think what may um, have helped. What may have helped me. And I. I did have to uh, read a portion of this play without hearing it out loud. I think what helped was that um, I was at the initial record where we did this piece. So I already had the actors and actresses yeah. in my head. So that when I picked it up again. Uh, I was able to hear that humor coming through. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, I do, I love, I love your, um, in your bio, um, cause I, I generally like to ask what genre you tend to focus on. It sounds like comedy is kind of your main road. Comedy, dramedy, somewhere yeah, in between. Somewhere in that, um, yeah. but I, I just love the opening of your bio, which is, uh, my plays tend to incorporate any or all of the following sarcasm, death, sarcastic death, Buddhism, foodism, poetry, song, and Shakespeare. That is a, that is a play in and of itself right there. You know, it's a little, it's a little scary. How many of those things really are in almost all, I don't think this one has any Shakespeare in it, but, um, most of the rest get in there somehow. So, um, the foodism is because, uh, the, you know, you may have noticed the characters in the play are Italian. That's like a big uh, thing in the play. Um, I, I, yes, I, I'm getting, I get flashes of my family when. So there you go. I mean, yeah. So my maiden name is not Light, it is Lavezzi. So um, mm. the Italian thing, you know, so I was hoping, you know, that resonates maybe with Italian Americans because there's, um, y- you know, how uh, maybe in your family, uh, Italian anger is more like this flash in the pan, yeah, you know? And yeah. Like, yeah. You know, everything is kind of emphatic and it could come across as really angry, but the next second, without missing a beat, you're like, hey, did you see the special on chickens at the A&P? And yeah, it's like, it just, and everything just flows and it's never really angry, you know? Um, so that everything can come off as kind of funny. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I, I'm probably not excited as well. No, no, it's, it's, I think um, if you grew up Italian or if you have seen any kind of representation of either Greek or Italian life on TV or film, like, I, I always like to use the example of um, my big fat Greek wedding. Oh my God, that's my family. That is my family too. It is crazy. <laughs> I am Italian, but it, the, the differences are so minute. That is, I... I I am a cord cutter. I have not had cable in about three years. But when I when I lived at home, when I was uh, with my parents, whenever that movie was on, if I was flipping channels, yeah. I don't care if there's two hours left in the movie or if there's five minutes left. I'm watching it to the end. Yeah. And everything and about movie- all the men in the family being named Nick. Uh, <laughs> the, so the- in my family, it's everybody's named some version of Frank, Francis, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Franny, I mean, there's, there's a million versions of Frank or Francis and, um, yeah. you can go, you can go further back and go to the eighties. If you ever saw the movie Moonstruck, they did a really good job of like, you know, getting that kind of Italian vibe and it's right. funny. But when my grandfather saw that movie, he said, I don't know why everybody's so excited. I mean, it's just people living their lives. And it's like, that's because we're the joke, grandpa. Yes. I mean, because <laughs> we're the joke, you know? So, yeah, it's kind of like that. So, so the characters in this, um, uh, Leo and Francis are, well, I, I guess I would, I guess I can ask, who, who would you say, whose story uh, is this? Is it their daughter, Carmen, or is it their story? You know, this is a funny one. I feel like it's all three of them because... Carmen, um, by act two, she's separated from her parents. She has to, she has to come to grips, you know, with everything. So she has her arc, but Francis and Leo obviously have to come to grips 
too, you know, with each other, with themselves. And so I, I feel like it's all of them. But if I was going to, I feel like it's mostly Carmen's story and then maybe Fran, Franny's and then Leo the third yeah. is kind of how I felt. That's but, kind of the vibe I got from act one, but then towards the end of act one, Leo kind of started to come a little bit more uh, into his own. So that's why it was yeah. a little tough for me to place. I, I loved all of them. Um, Leo, the, I guess you'd call it hypochondriac nature of Leo, uh, remind me a lot of my mother, who I'm sure is listening to this, and I want to clarify, I'm speaking about you in the best of light, but... Yeah, great um, affection. There, I mean, I, I think back to when I was 16 or 17 years old, I was driving her home from the grocery store, and I went over a speed bump slightly too fast and when we got home she put on a neck brace and complained (laughs) and told me that she had whiplash and she spent the whole day you know shaking with the neck brace on i i saw a lot of that in leo leo for those who haven't read the play yet um definitely uh has a sense of like uh this is the end this (laughs) about him with everything Um, and it's interesting to me how, I mean, I got a sense right at the beginning and I think that this inkling paid off by the time we got to act two that Leo and Franny are not quite as different as they would like to trick themselves into thinking that they are. Yeah, I I think that's definitely true. And, you know, they're... In particular, they're both super eager to point at each other. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they both have that tendency to, to look out rather than at all ever, you know, do any self-examining. Yeah. Um, so, and actually, you know, Carmen's doing the same thing. The whole, the, the title is very odd, but it comes from Carmen's attempt <laughs> to live in basically denial yeah. over the deaths of her parents. So she focuses on Billy Joel rather than focusing on this tremendous upheaval. And and that's the same kind of pointing out rather than at oneself, you know? And that was another question I had for you. Um, what is, uh, it, it's clear in the play what the significance of Billy Joel is to her and her parents. Um, is there a particular significance with you, with Billy Joel in connecting those three characters? No. And I, <laughs> I, 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 mean, I love it. I love it. I love Billy Joel, but I don't know where I got that. Except, I mean, except insofar as, okay, m- my family's Italian, and and I grew up, and we we were Italian from Chicago, and we all listened to Billy Joel, right? Yeah. But I mean, other than that, I don't know why that presented itself to me as something. Uh, I, I I honestly couldn't tell you. It just, yeah, I honestly don't know. But it was, I just threw it in there as something she's grabbing and it all kind of fell into place from there. You know, I remember I was standing in my kitchen and I just started laughing and I was telling my husband about, there's a scene at the end where somebody disparages Billy Joel to her and she loses her mind. And, and I just, I pictured that scene. So I had that end in mind and it struck me as so funny. So I, I don't know that just, I, I like Billy Joel as much as the yeah. next person. <laughs> well, it's, it, it makes for such a unique uh, title. Like, if you see that in a Fringe Festival or on a dramatist website or something like that, you're going to look into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. That's just one of those things, you know, sometimes something just... Pre- and actually, I used it at the beginning just as a working title. I was just going to... Leave it there. We'll figure out the real title later. Yeah, I'll figure out the real title. But I never did. I I grew attached. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I find that happens a lot, particularly in comedy writing. I I, I talk about The Simpsons a lot on this podcast, too, because that, that influenced the yeah. way I turned out a lot. And I, I, imagine, I see from your nod that probably helped your sense of humor. There's a very interesting Halloween episode where Homer gets a hair transplant from a recently executed snake. Um, 
also known as Jailbird. And the name of the episode is Hell to Pay. Uh-huh. And oh. <laughs> on the commentary, Matt Groening, the creator of the show, says that he was in the writer's room and he had to leave early for some reason. And he didn't say anything because he left and he was like, yeah, Hell to Pay. That's obviously not the what they're going to go with. And then yeah. the episode went into production <laughs> and it's yeah. called Hell to Pay. Yeah. So sometimes yeah, so, sometimes that initial instinct is just well, what you know, it means. Titles are so hard. Yeah. It's so hard to come up with titles so that you get one and, and then it grows on you. And, and, you know, I have other ones where I've, I've never been happy with the title, but that one I was like, no, actually it, it grew and, and I couldn't think of anything else, you know? And you, again, you found a way to really root it into the significance of those characters that it's, it's a little goofy and funny at first glance until you get into the meat of the play and realize why it's important. Yeah. Um, so you also said in your bio that you, you focus on death and, uh, sarcastic death a lot. Do characters coming to terms with the repercussions of death tend to be prevalent in your work? Oh, so let me think. I, uh, wow. Know, the death thing, I don't know where the death thing came from. And, and some of it is, yeah, like, com- it's not so much coming to grips with the death, actually. That's not really what it turns out to be. And I don't think really that's what Billy Joel's about either. Um, I, I think it's more about the quality of your life. Like, it, at the end, at the end, right? Right. I think we all get it. We all have to die. And that's scary for a lot of people. But then if you ask, let's, let's go one layer deeper. Why is that scary? Well, it's not just, uh, it's not just the death. It's, it's the question of what value to me, to anyone, you know, what, what did I get out of that life? And, and that's, um, I think that's scary. I think people facing death who feel like they've lived their life, they milked it, you know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, so I think that fascinates me. I think that the way to look at, at, at a quality of life is actually to look at the quality of the death. Wow. And I know that sounds really morbid. No, it's beautiful. But, it's, it's oddly um, beautiful. It, it's oddly beautiful. And I, and, and, um, so the, the whole premise for this play, actually, my um, parents did actually die just a few weeks apart. And, um, and I saw two very different deaths, you know, and, um, and, and that's, but I was writing about death long before that. So I think that just ended up in a play sort of naturally because of who I am. Right. But, um, but I've lost a lot of family members in the last several years. And I, and I do think that, that, um, it is fascinating to see, to see people's lives played out in, in how they die. And, and I don't think we, as modern man have a very good relationship with death. You know, we, right. you know, we treat it. I don't know. We try not to, we try to avoid it. I don't try to avoid it. You know, it's there. So. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, for, for some playwrights, they might, you know, Edgar Allan Poe-esque approach uh, and be maudlin and morose and, you are not you you put a spotlight on it and say here's what we're going to talk about today i'm locking the doors you we're going to talk about this way <laughs> like it or not and you but you make you know just you know going off of this play and i can only imagine that it transcends to the other plays as well um I, you you i think you make people comfortable enough to laugh about it and not question why they're laughing um, yeah, that's the danger. You don't you don't want to make fun of it exactly. But there was there's a line in the first act where Carmen says to her mother, "You don't have to die." And her mother goes, "Oh, have I got news for you?" You know, like <laughs> you know. Yeah, Fra- Francis seems very like right at the beginning of the play. Seems like here we are. Let's. Yeah, well, she's been sick for a long time, right? And she's done. She doesn't want to do this anymore. So, you know, whereas you know. Um, Leo likes to say he's dying constantly, but he doesn't actually want to, and he doesn't actually think he is. He just wants the attention, right? Right. So it's a shock. 
but for her, she's been in pain. So yeah, she's, she's, uh, pretty down with it. And there's one more character before we talk about some of the logistics of the play. There's one more character that I have been dying to ask you about. Um, the character of Ganesh, and this goes back to, um, that, that Buddhism, uh, features in a lot of, what was the idea behind putting not putting Ganesh, not just in this play, but having him kind of fill in this facilitator role? Okay. So I'm not Buddhist, um, but I find it fascinating. And, um, and I guess he's not really at the afterlife is Buddhist. Ganesh is like a Hindu deity. I'm certainly not Hindu, but um, I love the idea of Ganesh. So he's the Hindu deity, not just of learning and letters, you know, so literature, he's the placer and remover of obstacles. And I think I love the idea of that, right? Cause he's not just the remover of obstacles. You don't just pray to him and say, could you make everything easy for me? If he thinks you need it harder, <laughs> You yeah. know, you're, you're getting it harder. Right. So I, I just love the idea of a God that's in charge of what we would call chance. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I also, you know, I'm fascinated by chance. So he's the God of chance. And, and I just think that's kind of cool and that's his role. So he is placing and removing the obstacles that they're going to face now, I don't know, you know, I'm not a Hindu. I don't believe that he has anything in particular to do with the afterlife. So he's not necessarily supposed to be shepherding souls, but in this play he is. And, um, but he's placing and removing the obstacles. He's kind of toying with the people a little bit to help them get to where they need to be, you know? And in yeah. this particular case, they need to be okay with their mortality. So... Right. You know, so he's he's facilitating that because that's my white Western interpretation of Ganesh, you know. What I think is really unique about him, and this will segue into kind of my favorite structural part of the piece, is that uh, he is either always there physically or he's always there spiritually, but you leave a lot open to the director. And I have a great respect for that. There's a, a piece that we're working on right now. Um, we, it started out as an ears piece, um, and transitioned to a workshop and we were mounting it for French this year. It's Salamander by Lisa Villamil. And she is, uh, notorious as a playwright for her, lack of specificity in stage direction. She leaves, she basically gives you the freedom. To, she, she said to me, the, the way she puts it is, she puts the words down. Once she gives you the words, they are, you know, the action is for you to decide, but God help you if you change any of her words. <laughs> um, and I, I, I saw a lot of freedom here, and I feel like as a director, I would not be intimidated by this piece. There's a uh, show I'm working on now that going back to an earlier part of the conversation, it is an, it's an older piece. It had a four and a half year run in Philly. And then when it moved to Broadway, it ran for five performances. So the, oh, wow. te the text of the script is not amazing, but it's definitely a, well-written funny piece when it is said out loud um and it, that's all the difference and there was a moment where there was a slight inconsistency and an actor kind of jokingly asked the director you know why and the director just kind of smiled and was like uh because it's in the script that's what we gotta have to we're gonna have to go with that a lot for this piece um so is this a is this a trend in your pieces that you kind of you can you kind of craft kind of the framework of a world and then kind of have the trust in the director to do with it what they will I try to yeah um so you know it is it is a collaborative art it's it's a, it's unique that way right i mean theater is right. unique it oh, is collaborative yeah. and it's not just collaborative 
between the writer and the director or the writer and the actors or the director and the actors or the sound or the staging or the, you know, costume. And there's a huge, huge group of people collaborating and it's even collaborative with the audience, right? Because if you, you must've had the experience that the energy of the audience affects oh energy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You get a different experience every time. And I find that fascinating. And you have to have at some level some trust in that collaboration. You know, I, I think if you try to, um, and there certainly are playwrights that do it and do it well, that they, they dictate certain, you know, things. Um, for me, it falls to pick your battles, right? So in this particular case, I have the afterlife and the material world and everything in between coexisting on the stage at the same time. And I've never been to the afterlife. So I'm going to go with, you know, everybody can kind of create their own vision for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's not a, and it's, it's such an unreal, this particular piece is so unreal that I would be fascinated. I'm sure there's about a million ways to, to create that, you know? So now there are, there are other plays where I feel strongly, you know, about something particular, you know, that has to be, I have another play, the one you were talking about with the the time travel uh, thing, there's a garden and the garden is practically a character. So, so it's pretty important that you have these big picture windows and there's a garden outside. Now, however you realize that, you know, is, is fine, but you have to have the big picture window in the garden and the drapes that has to be there because it's so central to so much. Remember what I said, uh, beyond that, I, I, I try not to dictate too much. So, you know, I, typically my scripts indicate that race is optional. Um, this one is slightly different because the family is Italian American, but in yeah. general, if there is not a specific reason for a specific gender or race, that's optional. Um, if there's wow. not a specific reason for a specific set piece or, you know, a door in this particular place, optional. It, it, anything that doesn't have to be there is optional. So I, I do try to be as flexible as possible. And to kind of move on to a more uh, production-based question, there's an interesting trend I've been noticing with these pieces. When we first started the Elephant Ears reading series, we were getting a lot of either uh, first-run pieces from young playwrights or uh, you know drafts from established playwrights. And what I've been noticing, the last three or four episodes have all featured plays that have seen the light before coming to us. I noticed that um, Billy Joel Holds the Key to the Afterlife won first place, uh, in the 2018 Julie Harris playwriting competition at Beverly Hills Theater Guild. Um, and it's it's been another competition before. Uh, so I guess my question is, um, what was it about our feedback program that uh, drew you in to send this piece our way? And did our process help shape the piece in another direction? So um, I mentioned earlier, I live in a really small town, and I mean, it's a really small town, and it was founded here specifically to be out of the way. So I don't have um, a lot of theater uh, connections in my state, even. I'm in New Mexico, and it's a very, you know, bare state. There's theater in Albuquerque, and there's some in Santa Fe, um, but, you know, hours away. So, um, So I have never, in fact, heard that play out loud until I oh, got wow. until you guys read it. So that was the first time I'd ever heard anybody read that play. Um, and so, you know, I'm thrilled that it won that um, competition and it was a, a finalist in another. And so it's, I'm like, I know that there's something good about the play. And I also know that I haven't had it um, staged or produced or anything. So probably it could also use work, you know, um, and I submit to contests, hoping that getting some street cred will help get something on its feet, you know? Right. But in this particular case, I had never even heard it. So when I saw this uh, 
thing that you do, you know, reading it. I was like, oh, thank God, somebody will read this and I can hear it. I've never heard it. So yes, it definitely helped. Um, the written feedback in particular, because there's, it's almost like a dialogue. You guys sent me yeah. pages of saying, oh, I was a little confused about this or, oh, I like that. Okay. That's great. Cause I have not ever had anybody read it and offer feedback. So between that and then I can listen to the recording. I did listen to the recording and I can hear the pacing, you know, and decide, hmm, maybe this scene is too long or that one could use a little something. You know what I mean? Right. That's really helpful. And you guys offered it and nobody else, I have no other access to that. So that's what drew me to you. I'm really glad that we could help. Would you recommend us to other playwrights? Absolutely. I mean, if you know, I don't know if people have trouble getting readers, you know, to their house. I, like I said, I live in a small town, not a lot of theater people. And, um, you know, maybe anybody who doesn't have like a posse to sit down and read their stuff, um, this would be really useful for, I think. So, so definitely. And uh, what are your current plans with this piece? Where do you plan on taking it next? Either a place to take it or in terms of the process of writing uh, the next stage? So, um, I, you know, I'll keep submitting it to theaters and things like that. Um, I've got it on the New Play Exchange. I'm on the New Play Exchange. So oh, nice. if somebody does a search for death comedies, maybe it'll come up and they'll find it. Um you know, so I'll try to market it around. But in the meantime, too, uh, I'm going to – I read the feedback and I listened to the reading. And what I like to do is let that sort of marinate in my head and then go back and look at it again in a week or two, listen to it again. And it gives me um, sort of further ideas for where to tighten, you know, um, where maybe to punch up some of the language, you know. So it, everything's kind of in development as far as I'm concerned until it's not. And this one can still be honed. So I'll, I'll end up uh, revisiting it probably this summer. Nice. Well, I have very much enjoyed uh, looking at it and experiencing it and hearing it. Um, and I can't wait to see or hear where it goes next. Thank you. Um, and to wind down, I always like to wrap up the episode with a fun little theater question. Um, Normally, they're drinking-based, but uh, I thought for this one, since we talked about the relationship with Ganesh and the characters and just your overall pension for uh, Shakespeare and classical theater and other plays, um, what I thought might be interesting is if you could have Ganesh help any other character from any other play through their limbo... Who would you pick? Well, do you mean my version of Ganesh? <laughs> your, let me clarify. Yes, yes, your your version of Ganesh from this piece. Um, okay. Um, you know, I just recently saw Macbeth. Um, National Theater Live had a Macbeth, and it was showing in Santa Fe, you know. So, and I really feel like um, Macbeth probably could have used some therapy. Um, I think that maybe he could have used some little tough love and, um, you know, maybe he could, he could use some help from beyond. It's funny you say that because I was going to say Hamlet. Okay. Who yeah, is not, no, who is not, who's not too far off on the, uh, yeah, yeah. He definitely needed a smack and, you know, a little wake up call. God, there's so, I, I actually just saw Macbeth recently, um, it was a Hedgerow Theater production, and I, I forgot how many moments in that play are just zero to 60 for him. Not even necessarily by his choice. It's just he goes from, I don't necessarily want to do this, to, yeah. well, guess that happened. Yeah. And now I have, and <laughs> immediately just like buckling down on the decision, like doubling down so fast. Yeah, it's really bad decision making. I, I think he needed a little tough love to to slow him down and have him look bigger picture. You know, I would like to. I would love to write a Shakespeare story just called "Really Bad Decision Making." Yeah, and you put them all together. Put Macbeth, put Othello or Othello, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Hamlet. Um, I'm sure there are other bad decision makers. Oh, um, crap! What's the king from um, uh, King's Tale? 
Oh, uh, from Winter. I don't know. Because that's that is a character who, in the first scene, it starts with a party, and like halfway through the first page, he has to just suspect his wife of. I think it was <laughs> like, and it's a it's a soliloquy to the audience. The party's going on on stage, and he's literally smiling, and then just turns and goes. But what if like. It's the fastest character change I've seen uh, in a Shakespeare yeah. play. God, dude, that man had some demons. I think we have to accept that you go into a Shakespeare play knowing already that everyone's already crazy, right? They're yes. already nuts, and we're catching them at the moment where it's going to catch up with them. I think that's uh, I think that's a pretty fair assessment of Shakespeare. Waltess, thank you so so much for coming in, coming on, and talking with me today. Um, I have greatly enjoyed talking to you and I can't wait to see where Billy Joel holds the key to the afterlife goes next. Um, as always for any other playwrights out there, aspiring or otherwise, if you have any piece you're working on that you would like feedback on, please, please, please send it to erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Remember every story deserves to be heard. So join our elephant herd today. Until next time, I'm Robert Jean Pelleccio, signing off. Where it's going to catch up with them. I think that's, uh, I think that's a pretty fair assessment of Shakespeare. Thanks. Well, Tess, thank you again so, so much for uh, coming in and talking with me today. One moment. Hey! Stop that. My cat, my cat was scratching the uh, furniture. Um, let me take that again. Okay.